Hello and welcome to Cloud9Fin, a podcast about corporate credit of all stripes, whether it's public or private, asset-backed or structured, performing or distressed, and everything in between. I'm your host, Will Cager-Smith, and this week I'm joined by Jess Larson, the founder and CEO of Briarcliff Partners, which is a leading placement agency for private credit funds. So welcome, Jess. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Will. Um, yeah, and I actually feel bad because a couple of weeks ago we had Eric Mueller from Oak Hill in this very studio, and I told him that his episode was historic because it was going to be the last one we recorded in this studio before we upgrade to a bigger office. But that was before we booked you in as a guest. So now you're here in person too. And sorry, sorry, Eric. Um, but <laughs> thanks for making the sorry, trip. Sorry, Eric. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway. Lots and lots of questions about private credit fundraising for you. But before we start, some of our listeners might not be super familiar with private credit and how placement agents play a part in the market. So perhaps you could just give a simple explanation of the work that you do at Briarcliff. Yes, certainly. And also work of private credit as a whole or more just the agency business? I mean, yeah, we've, we've talked quite a lot about private credit on the on the podcast. So it's really just, you know, how placement agents figure into the, the general landscape. Absolutely. So a placement kind of sits in between the GPs and the LPs, mm -hmm. um, which is a super interesting privileged situation because we hear what's going on both sides, of, both sides of the table. But our job is really to go out and find very interesting private credit strategies and private credit funds that need to raise money. And then we help them fundraise from institutional investors. So we, mm -hmm. will, we will go in and we look at about 250 private credit strategies a year of which we will select maybe five or six to work with, mm -hmm. and then we bring them out to the institutional investors. And it's an interesting part because private credit is a big market and it's growing really fast. And a lot of the LPs have heard of all the household names, mm -hmm. but there are thousands out there raising money right now. There are right, about 1,000 yeah. private credit funds. So what we try to find is the ones that are unknown but really deserving of institutional capital and we just see more than the average lp mm -hmm. so that's really our job right 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 yeah i've got lots of questions about that for you actually because the, the you know the, the market's just exploded lately and it feels like every every day there's a new fund pretty much yeah um but first of all i want to talk about the denominator effect which yeah. was big part of the conversation last year still like somewhat a part of the conversation this year but we we did just put out a piece last week about pension funds and about how the strong performance of public equities and, and other public markets this year in the US has kind of eased the denominator effect for some of them and given them a little bit more headroom in terms of how much they can allocate to private credit. So it feels like, yeah, the den denominator effect has eased a little bit, but we do still hear that fundraising is is tough out there, maybe a, a lot tougher than, it, than it's been uh, or than it was kind of pre-COVID or, or um, you know, in the sort of early, in 2021, for example. So so is is that true? Am I characterizing it right? And and why do you think that is, if so? No, you are absolutely right. Uh, it is, it has been a more challenging market for fundraising in the private credit space. It's probably been the toughest that we've had in seven years. Mm. However, we shouldn't forget that if our our private equity cousins are having an even harder time at the moment. So right. relatively speaking, we're fine, but in absolute returns, it, actually, it is really uh, a bit more challenging that we, we've seen in the last seven years when we talk about the first half of this year. We could talk about how that's going to change in the second half of this mm -hmm. year. And out of curiosity, you say the past seven years, what's, is there like an event that you're thinking of that was the start of it being like a really bullish market for fundraising? 
Um, it just we just look at the amount of dollars raised in the first half of the year versus the last six seven years, and uh -huh. we had to go back to two thousand sixteen since right. we saw such low levels. Okay, I see. Um, right. So it's less about a catalyst or an event. Um, with your right, um, everybody's been talking about the denominator effect. Mm -hmm. um, I think there is more to it in from terms of last year. We obviously had the war breaking out with in Ukraine. We had the equity market. Um, having a tough time, which obviously created the denominator effect. And at the same time, we had very aggressive interest rate hikes. Mm -hmm. Those three things put together really put a halt on a lot of fundraising. And a lot of institutional investors actually allocating money, taking a pause, thinking what, what is going on. We're now sitting here in 2023. The denominator effect is no longer a big issue. Mm -hmm. So the question obviously you're asking is, so what is holding back the fundraising for private credit? Because on one hand, we can see and we hear and we know that this is the golden age of private credit. So why are we not seeing it in dollar terms? Mm -hmm. And the reason being is that the private equity funds are very slow in distributing at the moment. There's not a lot of M&A, so not a lot of exits from the private equity funds, i.e. the big pension funds, insurance companies, and so forth, do not really have that cash they anticipate to come back to put into private credit. Mm -hmm. That's holding back the market. Right. Interesting. Okay. It's especially interesting because I guess a lot of the big private equity funds are also the ones that are raising private credit funds, you know, not not limited to them, but, you know, Apollo, KKR, etc. Um, so it's kind of like uh, the, the sort of taint of, of private equities underperformance kind of impacts private credit a bit. Yeah. So you, you, you're hitting on a good point here, because when we look at the two firms you just mentioned, KKR mm -hmm. and Apollo, they're really private credit funds. Mm -hmm. We know them historically as being private equity, but if you look at the dollars they're actually managing, right. they're really private credit funds. Mm -hmm. um, and that's interesting. And for that reason, not just for that reason, for many reasons, I would be as bold to say that in 10 years' time, private credit is going to be bigger than private equity. Mm -hmm. The golden era of private equity is slowing. If, I wouldn't say it's dead. It wouldn't be that dramatic. But we really is seeing the winds going towards private credit. Mm -hmm. So in 10 years' time, I believe private credit is going to be bigger than private equity. How much of that is just to do with interest rates? <laughs> interest rate plays short term, right? Uh -huh. So if we look, we're going to talk about the next 20, 10 to 20 years. You are 100% right, Will. It is helping us at the moment that so far sitting at 5.5 or 5.25. Uh, that gives us a very high absolute return on our performance in the private credit space because private credit, as we should remember, is really floating rate. Mm -hmm. It also hurts the leverage buyout, right? So with leverage buyout, gonna, performance is gonna drop and private credit is gonna increase, really narrowing that gap. And that's wonderful and we will see that in the next couple of years, but there are a lot more reasons why private credit is, is increasing. Mm -hmm. So you use the term there, uh, golden age of private credit. Yeah. And I feel like I should have a bingo card or something <laughs> because we, we hear that a lot these days yeah. and it it kind of it, it's hard to argue with in the sense that you know we're we're journalists uh, part of nine fin is you know a, a team of journalists um and and we're kind of monitoring coverage and we just we just see it all over the place it's like a really strong narrative at the moment um that said there are a lot of funds out there like you mentioned before and one other thing we hear about fundraising is that it is a just a lot easier for the bigger funds, the household names to to raise funds than some of the smaller new entrants. But there are so many new entrants and you kind of alluded to that earlier. So I'm I'm curious, how much harder is it for smaller firms? Is it harder for smaller firms, in fact, to, to raise funds compared to the big names of private credit? 
it is still harder for the smaller names. Mm -hmm. But it also, we need to look at uh, kind of the strategies because it's a little strategy dependent. So when you're looking at the bigger firms, they tend to raise predominantly very large direct lending firm, uh, funds. Now, direct lending is a great sub-asset class of private credit, but it's not all what private credit is about. Mm -hmm. Direct lending is a beta play on private credit. And it has a room in more or less every single portfolio of private credit. In order to make money in direct lending, you really got to do two things here. One is you've got to have alpha buy avoids. You've got to avoid the losses. That's mm -hmm. one way of making money in direct lending. The other way is dry down the fees. The way to dry down the fees is scale up. So you've got to have, and we will see, and we are seeing all the consolidation at the moment within the direct lending space. That's a way to get to scale to lower the fees. Mm. And if you're an LP, you will then gravitate towards the larger scale funds. However, when we look at the most popular strategy at the moment, which is asset-based lending, those are not as scalable, right? Mm -hmm. So you're looking at funds that are 600 to $1.5 billion, right? So smaller funds. But those LPs that are looking for asset-based lending will have to go into these smaller funds. Right, okay. Well, out of curiosity, what is it about asset-backed lending in particular that makes it less scalable? Uh, what makes it less scalable? The, the deals are harder to come by mm -hmm. um, because what you're looking for in a company is an actual asset, whether that's a financial asset or it's a physical asset, you can take hard collateral in. So if anything goes wrong, you have that collateral. You could, in theory, invest in bad companies mm -hmm. that has great collateral and make money. Right. Whereas, which is very different from your typical uh, direct lending that really lends, again, cash flow. Right, right, right. And they're just smaller. There's a less, the smaller subset of companies that actually offer these um, asset-based collateral situations. Right? Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. there's just not that many situations out there. Right, right. And are we talking about you know providing ABL lines that kind of thing, or, or are we talking about other types of I guess what some people would call specialty lending? You know, kind of auto loans, home solar loans. Um, uh, litigation financing, that kind of thing. Like, yeah, does that all sit under the subset of asset based? So, I would say litigation finance probably sits a little bit outside, uh -huh. but it could be your uh, construction leasing equipment that you want to take. Mm -hmm. It could be an IP mm -hmm. of a, of a, of an IT company. You can actually take collateral in that IP, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's kind of what we are looking at. It could be uh, whiskey barrels. Yeah, saw that recently. Yeah. yeah, I think our headline for that was whiskey business, which. <laughs> I apologize for <laughs> whiskey business or tasteful business. Right. <laughs> um, so practically speaking, mm -hmm. that difference between the bigger firms and the smaller firms how, on a day to day basis, you know, in terms of getting meetings and that kind of thing, how does that play out when they're fundraising? Is it just that LPs won't even take a meeting with the smaller funds or is it that they just prefer the track record of the bigger firms and you know therefore they get in the room and the smaller funds just you know mm -hmm. don't get a look in or or is it just that they hear the pitches from the smaller funds but they just can't differentiate them from the bigger funds you know how does it how does it play out on a sort of day-to-day -day basis within the direct lending space it can be a little bit more challenging to differentiate between the various firms or mm -hmm. the various managers <clears throat> so last week we had our annual Briarcliff Summit at the Metropolitan Club, we had just shy of 100 institutional LPs. Mm -hmm. And we, what we did was we showcased our eight managers that we represent, which is a mixture of direct lending to asset-based lending to TMT growth debt, non-sponsored lending. And the interesting part was the 
the asset-based lenders got a lot of interest. A lot of the LPs wanted to go and actually hear that story and learn about it because they do understand direct lending mm. and less of a need to be educated again. But they really wanted to come in and actually hear, what do you do in asset-based lending? How does it work? Right. Because we all aware that it could actually play a very good role within a, um, a portfolio of private credit because it gives you that downside protection and it still gives you the good uh, mid-teens returns, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So does that mean that by extension, because everyone knows what direct lending is now, mm -hmm. that there's even more incentive for people to have to kind of lower fees in order to attract new LPs? You know, if, if, if the market is big enough and there's so much competition, mm -hmm. yeah. how do you differentiate yourself? Is it just on back tra on, on track record or is it just size or is it, you know, it, it lower fees because you can, if you scale up, you can yeah. just charge less? Well, one of the beauties of direct lending is the performance is very predictable. Mm -hmm. But another thing is, is also the, the band is very narrow from the top quartile to the mid quartile, right? Okay. So in order to really differentiate, you've got to do something. One thing can be to scale up so you can lower your fees. And okay. that allows a little bit of extra performance for, for the LPs. Okay, so it would be the, the, the vanguard of, uh, of, of private credit. It could yeah. be the Aries, the Churchills. And right. there, there are some wonderful direct lenders out there, for mm -hmm. sure. Um, and just, just one little thing you mentioned there about re returns being predictable in, in private credit. Yeah. Um, predictable, like, so far. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yes, so far it's been very predictable, uh, particularly within the direct lending space. Mm -hmm. it, it is a very predictable outcome. The question is on on many people's mind is if we are going to come into a recession or at least a more challenging economic environment, are we going to see default starting to normalize? Mm -hmm. And if it normalizes, how would that impact direct lending? Um, obviously, and, that is to be seen. Uh, and when you say normalize. Mm -hmm. Do you mean increase? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I think over the last 10 years, we've been pretty spoiled. Right. Very okay. low default rate. Right. Yeah. We've been in the bull market for far too long. Mm -hmm. um, so we will be coming back to more normalized default rates. Um, and therefore, that's where we're going to see the managers who either have workout capabilities or actually have a track record that goes pre-GFC, mm -hmm. which is only a small subset of the direct lenders actually have. Right, right. Um, but one thing is for sure is you will have, a, compared to private equity, you will have a more predictable outcome of your performance. Mm -hmm. And again, to that point, I feel like one one advantage of private credit that people talk about, or, mm -hmm. or let's let's stick to direct lending here, because, um, you know, so cash flow lending to two companies. One thing that people talk about is the fact that in a workout scenario or in a in a not even a workout scenario, just a stressed environment or slightly harder environment that we're in right now. Private credit is kind of better for borrowers in the sense that you might be able to sit down at a table with your two or three lenders and more easily negotiate an extension of your maturity or a waiver on covenants, that kind of thing. Um, but there's a limit to how long you can kind it kind of amend and extend right because just like private equity firms private credit funds have an obligation at some point to return capital do you ever hear concerns from lps about you know capital ending up being sort of locked up in in private credit funds because of uh kind of just endless maturity extensions like do you think we'll, we'll end up seeing sort of continuation funds for private credit I do think we're going to see more continuation funds for private credit. 
And I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. Mm. And I think if you're an LP or more importantly, if you are a mid-market borrower, I think you will feel a lot more comfortable have lent, have borrowed the money from a private credit GP rather than a bank. Mm. Now, we all saw what happened in at spring of this year with Signature Bank, Silicon Valley Bank, uh, Credit Suisse, and, and so forth, First Republic. Now, that is the risk a borrower do not want to take. Right? They do not want to take that whole other level of risk, where at least if you're sitting with a private credit GP, you can actually have a bespoke conversation and discuss what is right for the borrower, what's right for the lender. Mm-hmm. You can't keep losing money forever. Um, so there will be times where there will be more some more tougher conversation to be had. But that's where the special sets, distressed debt, or credit opportunities funds come in that can actually play a role in actually helping out those more challenged borrowers. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Do you think there could be a scenario where a special sits fund or a distressed fund of a asset manager that also has a regular way kind of like performing direct lending fund could step in and provide liquidity and be the continuation fund for those assets? I think it will be less of that. I mm-hmm. think there'll be some conflict of interest that needs to be well, yeah, resolved. Right. <laughs> uh, but I do think there will be certainly third parties, so to speak, third party special sits, distressed, that will come in and, and play a role if one of the direct lenders ends up in, in a situation where that's needed. Right, right. But I still think we are in a much better place with the private credit GPs than we are with the banks. Mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. banks have less patience, as we all know. Right, right, right. And the private credit GPs certainly have a longer period for the funds. They have a little bit more patience, as well as, as you mentioned, there is the option of the continuation fund. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I feel we are... As a borrower, I would feel a lot more comfortable with private credit in a challenged environment. Right, right, right. So we talked about some of the newer funds um, and the, the difference between the, the big guys and the, the smaller guys. Um, it, it feels like just there's headline after headline these days about it. so-and-so has launched a, a new private credit fund. Um, what do you think is the outlook for some of those newer funds, given the issues that we talked about earlier about it, it just being so much easier for the bigger, more established names to raise funds in the yeah. market? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think anyone who is considering setting up a direct lending fund right now really needs to re- reconsider mm-hmm. if if maybe that's five, six, seven years too late. Right. Direct lending is really dominated and should be dominated by the bigger players. However, if you're looking at some more interesting strategies, such as NAB lending, which is very much on people's mind at the moment, mm-hmm. you are going to see in the next six months a number of new startups from scratch, fun ones. And in those kind of more specific niche type areas of private credit, it makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. That's where the direct lenders simply can't play. Right. Um, but in NAB lending, we will be seeing, and we certainly we are aware of at least three high-profile launches coming up, okay. which we're very excited about. Mm. So when you look at litigation refinance, or you're looking at net lending, and you're looking at some of the other more kind of niche strategies, there will still be new launches. Right, right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, NAV lending, I mean, has, has been has been all over the news lately with mm. um, deals like Finastra, for example, you know, Goldman providing a, a NAV loan to fund the, uh, the, the new equity slice um, of that deal. So... Um, you know, we, we talked about different strategies within private credit, difference yeah. between direct lending and asset-based lending, that kind of thing. And one other kind of strategy that I guess falls under the the bucket of private credit um, is opportunistic mm-hmm. credit. Yeah. Um, we wrote a piece about this recently about the the rehabilitation we called it of of the the branding 
of opportunistic credit, which in years gone by felt like it was often seen with a slightly kind of distressed edge, um, maybe slightly predatory, you know, whether whether you agree with that or not, but that was the, the way that some people saw it. Um, and I feel like since the pandemic, yeah. that's shifted a bit because suddenly these, you know, so-called um, predatory, like opportunistic funds, it, it was the capital that everyone needed, flexible capital in a kind of uh, a really dislocated credit market. Um, and since then, we've seen a kind of explosion of opportunistic credit funds uh, or proliferation of them. So do you think that is the LPs have become more kind of okay with the idea of opportunistic credit in, in the past few years? And um, yeah, do you, do you think there's more growth to come there or do you think it's also topped out? Okay, so there's a couple of questions in that question. Yeah, um, <laughs> we'll start from one end. So at our summit last last week, we did actually ask the LPs, "What are your top three strategies you want to put money into over the next twelve months?" Um, and opportunistic credit was was a third. Mm -hmm. So we okay. had we had asset based lending was by far the number one. Then came direct lending, which I think is interesting because direct lending used to be top of everybody's mind. Now, right. it's, now it's number two. Yeah. And then number three was opportunistic credit. Mm. So let's talk about opportunistic credit. So when we talk about distress, back in the day, distress was real distress for control. And it was kind of a sub-strategy to private equity, but not really because you came in with the debt. Now it's a, it, it, that is more difficult when we've had 10 years of a bull market, right? Mm -hmm. It's not the right place or the right time to do distress for control. Um, so that's pivoted a little bit. So distress really, think you think about where are we in the cycle? You've got to play the cycle in order to get real good returns out of your, out of your distress. So a lot of distress managers have pivoted a little bit to more special situations. So special situations where a borrower will be stressed or challenged, but not necessarily distressed. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where the special situations come in. I can still derive good performance throughout the cycles. Credit opportunities in our world is a little different because credit opportunity funds really, as it means, there can be opportunities across the spectrum that could be growth growth borrowers, borrowers that are in a growth situation and need uh, capital of growth. It could be aviation lending if that's uh, presenting itself. It could be secondary trading with more liquid instruments. It could even be NAB lending or it could be direct lending plus. So what you're really thinking of opportunistic credit is having a many different types of strategy, almost like a multi-strat mm. within one fund. Right, right. And a lot of investors right now are thinking, we are moving out of a straight bull market. We are going to go into a challenge environment or a recession. We don't necessarily know where we're going, but there will be opportunities to make money. Mm -hmm. So why not invest with a credit opportunities fund yeah. that have that ability? Yeah, it makes sense. It's sort of the the quantity and variation between opportunities yeah. in the markets is kind of fracturing. You know, yes, like and that's exciting, as right? As it, yeah, exactly. And I'll tell you, sorry for interrupting you here, but the way that we look at private credit, private credit means a lot of things to different people. In order to put a framework together, we have divided private credit as follows. There's a vertical called corporate credit, structured credit, specialty finance, and then asset-based. Mm. Underneath that are 26 sub-strategies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, Private credit is very broad in its approach to investing. So any time or anywhere in the economic cycle, you will have strategies that can, can make you money. Now, private equity works really well in the bull market, and it is a little bit more difficult in a challenging recessionary market in private equity. But the good thing about private credit is 
you can find great absolute return no matter where we are in the economic cycle. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you mentioned secondaries in your previous answer as, as one of the kind of areas that opportunistic funds can play in. Um, we've seen some secondaries funds recently, like we've written about a couple. Jacob Morgan, for example, is, is looking to, to raise one with, within its kind of um, asset management arm. Yeah. Um, is do you think the secondaries market for private credit is ever going to really take off? Like, what's the what's the attraction for LPs there? And is basically is there enough is there enough paper on the market? Like, is there enough um, whether it's actual chunks of individual private credit loans or like chunks of individual private credit funds? Like, is there enough supply for for a secondaries fund to kind of you know um, have enough to do? There are some great managers in the private credit secondaries, as you mentioned, some of them, but, but there there's a more than a handful, if not a dozen of them that are, are good and strong out I there. I guess TKO is a is a you know TKO, big Pantheon one, right? and, and Collar yeah. and, and, and and others. And Apollo's got a great one as well. Mm -hmm. Um when you look at the secondary markets as a whole within infrastructure, private equity and private credit, the private credit is only really five, six, seven percent, right? So it's low. And that's going to grow a little bit, but is it going to explode? That remains to be seen. Mm. We probably need a more cracks in the market. We probably need a higher default rate to really see it. But to answer your question is, what is the advantage of an LP? Well, if you're an LP and you want to go into a credit fund, you're going into a blind pool. You're investing with a fund that may have one or two deals at the moment, and you're hoping they're going to put some great deals to the ground. But if you go into the secondary, you're no longer buying a blind pool. You're, blind, you're buying into a whole portfolio of loans that's already been done. Right, so, yeah. So you have less of a blind pool risk. And depending on the loans you're buying, there's a certain discount to it. Mm -hmm. So you're getting, you avoid the blind pool risk as well as you're getting an uptick in performance because you're buying them in at a discount. Mm -hmm. um, so for sophisticated LPs that have the ability to analyze those secondary portfolios, it's a great place to get in. Yeah, yeah. As it, you, you sort of know what you're getting. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so yeah. you can actually 100%. underwrite the assets in front of it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, okay, so um, in terms of Briarcliff and the work that you guys do, yeah. how are you adapting to the fact that there are just so many more private credit firms out there? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's more clients and potential clients than there have ever been, yeah. probably. Um, how do you pick and choose who you work with in this market? Yeah, that's a good question. And um, and we do get um, probably on average one cold call a day from a manager. So we see over 250. As that market grows, we're going to see more than 250 per year. Um, we are, interestingly enough, we're the only dedicated private credit placement agent out there out of 3,000. And we're the only one that's dedicated to private credit. We feel that our work becomes even more important and more critical to the LPs as the market grows. Most LPs will not have the time or the resources to see as many private credit GPs as we have. And a lot of them, a lot of the LPs will focus on the, the direct lenders that we all know about. We tend to focus on the, uh, the managers that are yet to be discovered by the LPs, right? So we try to find the gems. Right. Um, that deserve the private credit, the institutional capital, but are not yet known there. So we need to do 
continue to do our work of meeting new uh, GPs on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. We think it's important where, what we do for the GPs. We're kind of a, almost like an outsourced resource for the manager selection team. And so I do think as, as the marketing increases and increases, our job becomes more critical. Mm -hmm. We just need to hire more resources. Right, you know? right, right. But it becomes more critical. That makes sense. Um, and I guess one, one final add-on to that question is high net worth and retail is becoming a bigger piece of the puzzle when it comes to fundraising for private credit you see multiple firms go after you know those pools of capital do you do you feel like that's had any impact on the importance of uh institutional capital in the market or do you think institutional capital is just always going to be the you know the sort of linchpin of fundraising for private credit that remains to be seen well um if you look at the private wealth versus the institutional wealth in actual fact, the private wealth is a bigger pool of money. Mm -hmm. But okay. as, as we just spoke about, it hasn't really entered into the private markets yet. Right. But due to regulate, regulatory environment changing and due to some other aspects, we are now seeing private wealth coming into the private market and private credit uh, in particular. So there are certainly many firms out there that anticipate that the private wealth will be as big, if not bigger, than the institutional market. Mm -hmm. So the institutional market accounts for, is it 100 trillion? And the private wealth is 180 trillion. Mm -hmm. So in mm -hmm. theory, in 10, 20 years, we could be raising more money. The private credit managers can be raising more money from the private wealth. Right. The good news is we are seeing these private wealth institutions are consolidating. So the RA space are consolidating and we're getting the bigger and bigger. And some of them are actually bigger than the state pension plans. Right? Mm. You now see 20, 40, 60, 80 billion dollar RAs. Right. And probably, you know, less restricted as well in terms of where they can, you know, the denominator effect, for example, right? That's a good point. And also, if you're a state pension plan, you have regulatory requirements to get an institutional consultant to sign off. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're an RA, you don't have that. So you don't necessarily need a consultant to be involved. You have a lot more flexibility in your asset allocation, and you can be more opportunistic and buttons up in your selection of managers. Mm -hmm. So yes, you're 100% right. Yeah, super interesting. Really puts it in perspective. Um, all right. Well, that's all we got time for uh this week but thank you so much for coming in really thank you very much chat. for uh, for having me here thank yeah. you will and that's a wrap for another week thanks again to jess for coming in and to all our listeners for tuning into our musings on niche capital markets we appreciate your time and attention speaking of which if you enjoyed this episode please do share it We'll be back again in a couple of weeks from a brand new recording studio in a brand new office space. But don't forget to check in next week to hear from our colleagues over in London. See you again soon. And until then, take care.